Welcome to Design You with Dr. Garrison Lakeham. I'm your host, Garrison. My guest today is an author, speaker, and consultant. He's recognized as a thought leader throughout North America in strategic consulting, and he's recently published his second book, Momentum, How Companies Decide What to Do Next. He's founded Optimize Inc., a California-based consulting firm in 2002, and has grown an impressive client list that includes public companies and mid-market companies across a diverse range of industries, including financial services, healthcare, technology, and energy. My guest has facilitated strategy sessions for over 135 companies and is an accomplished international speaker. His article, Why 2018 Could Be the Best Year Ever to Be an Entrepreneur, is a must-read for anyone wanting to make a difference in their career, their business, and the world. I'd like to welcome to Design You, Mark. Mark Emmer. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here, and uh, greetings on a rainy day in Los Angeles. Mark, why is it such a remarkable time to be an entrepreneur? Well, I think there is a kind of unprecedented confidence in the economy right now, and we don't know how long that'll last. A lot of economists are expecting a recession in 2019 or 2020, but um, obviously the economy is... Uh, growing faster than it has in, in more than a decade. And I think in particular, there are some sectors that are very strong. We see a resurgence of manufacturing. And in particular, uh, technology continues to lead in terms of innovation. And I, I actually believe that uh, Silicon Valley is not only leading in terms of its products, but also in terms of kind of management theory and uh, really propelling a, a lot of companies forward in terms of business processes. So I think I think it's a really super uh, exciting time uh, to be an entrepreneur. A gig economy has been defined as an environment in which temporary positions are common and organizations contract with independent workers for short-term engagements. A study by Intuit has predicted that by 2020, 40% of American workers will be independent contractors. How has the gig economy ignited the freelancer market? I think the gig economy is kind of a two-edged sword. Uh, I think on one hand, um, it's a function of rampant underemployment um, in our country. All you have to do is travel the heartland of Pennsylvania or Ohio, and you know, you're going to see a lot of shuttered businesses, which of course is uh, very disconcerting. Um, so I think a lot of people are struggling, and the gig economy uh, doesn't always provide them the quality of life and health care and all of those things. But all of that being said, I would say it's never been easier to start a business. All you really need is maybe a cell phone and $100, and you could launch an enterprise. And, and there's a lot of collaboration tools uh, and even e-commerce tools that uh, make launching a business uh, so easy. You know, if you wanted to have an online store, um, you can do that really quickly and inexpensively. If you needed to transact, you have tools like Square where you can do that really uh, seamlessly. Um, so you don't need all of the infrastructure you once needed in order to launch a business. So while all, I think the gig economy um, 
may be a uh, an unfortunate need on the part of many people to, to to launch a business. I also think it affords a tremendous amount of opportunity to kind of uh, get out of the gate pretty quickly and inexpensively. Overall, the economy appears to be heating up and experiencing one of its most expansive periods of the recovery. The Wall Street Journal reports that investment confidence for both small and medium-sized businesses is up sharply from last year with e-commerce expected to grow 20%. How does the specific growth of e-commerce help potentially make 2018 the best year ever to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think e-commerce is also a two-edged sword. So as you reference, e-commerce is really blowing up right now. Uh, I'm actively working with four or five companies who were traditionally brick and mortar but have kind of moved to e-commerce. Um, and I think in particular, Amazon is bastardizing a lot of categories. Um, it, it kind of promotes a race to the bottom. Um, but there are very few barriers to entry. Um, so I think the real promise of e-commerce is, is kind of mass customization at scale, right? That's what a lot of these companies are. So you could take almost any product category that has already been established and build build a model from the ground up based on choice, um, and then you can fulfill whatever the customer demands are really inexpensively. So, for example, I have a client uh, that prints T-shirts, and they sell them to companies like Zulily and direct-to-consumer. So the consumer could order a St. Patrick's Day shirt in their preferred print uh, in any color, in any size, and it could ship the next day for $25. So... Uh, that model of choice online is how companies are combating the likes of, say, a Walmart or Nordstrom's that really can't match um, that level of choice. And I think there's kind of similar business models evolving on the B2B side uh, as well online. So e-commerce, uh, in many respects, is kind of the great, the great equalizer. It's uh, the opportunity for uh, just about anyone to launch a business and find a kind of a finite niche where they can win online because – if you get too broad in your in your offering, um, that's when you end up competing with the Amazons and the Walmarts and, and the, the other e-commerce players. You are an internationally recognized strategy expert. What advice do you have for companies on formulating a strategy? I think there's several important facets to that. Um, probably the most important one is doing a lot of work up front. So that's uh, really understanding your market and a market you might try to grow in, the underlying environmental factors that might impact demand in your market. So it's doing a lot of research kind of in that first phase of strategy. And you, you have to build like the systematic, repeatable system. So a strategic planning meeting should not be an event. It should be a process. And so you do a lot of work before you, you meet with your team to talk about strategy. And then once you've done that, you need to spend the, the time formulating the strategy, and then you need to institutionalize it in a written plan with an action plan with champions and dates and you know a shared group of objectives, having the right KPIs. And then you need to meet very often to make sure that your strategy remains uh, nimble and relevant. So the way I would describe strategy formation is it's moving to much more of an agile type of process where companies are recognizing that the environment around them is constantly shifting. So 
they also need to have a strategic planning process that can kind of pivot. So I think it is important to have the long-range view, but then also to constantly reevaluate your strategy probably quarterly or so so that you make sure that you're um, – your plan is relevant and also that you're staying on plan. We see companies doing more reinvesting than ever with financing and equity markets primed to invest in very well-run businesses. What technologies have companies characteristically invested in and what key technology questions would you recommend that entrepreneurs ask themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the first question I would ask is, how will technology be a competitive advantage for your company? So over the last few years, I think a lot of our clients who tend to be small and mid-market companies have done an extraordinary job in improving kind of internal processes, the things that make their internal process faster, cheaper, better. But I think in the future, it's going to be really important that our technology improvements be more outward-facing and improve the customer experience. So I think in order to combat these large companies and also to serve large clients, what we're seeing is uh, more end-to-end type solutions. Um, so it's going to be really important that companies have a better level of integration uh, within their technology and that they are able to mine data that in some way will be of value to their customers. Why is it that entrepreneurs forget to look at themselves when considering investments and What do you recommend they do? Yeah, that's another great question. I I see a lot of business owners kind of developing their people, but not themselves. So every employee, including the CEO, should have a learning plan. You know, I I read that the average CEO reads 50 books a year. And, you know, what I do is I don't read 50 books a year, but I do completely overwhelm myself with content from kind of a broad range of sources, and then I'm able to skim what's really important to me. So I think going to three or four conferences a year, making sure that you're mixing it up with other CEOs, maybe in a peer group like Vistage or YPO or something like that, um, you know, is really, really useful. I, I know I went to the Inc. conference last year, and I've been in a peer group for 13 years, and um, I learn so much when I go to those kinds of conferences or associate with those kinds of people because you know, I'm kind of inspired by, <laughs> by other entrepreneurs and, and what they're learning about. So I think uh, mixing it up with them is really important in terms of uh, maintaining a, a path of learning. You know, it seems that long-established companies, as well as this new wave of entrepreneurs, both become obsessed with constantly looking to create something new. Is it wise to put perpetual newness on a pedestal? And if not, what's the better approach? You know, I think as opposed to newness, my focus might be core versus non-core. So famously, you know, Google has a strategy where they invest 70% of their new investment in their core business, 20% in adjacent businesses, and 10% in things that are truly transformational. And there are a lot of companies, both large and small, who are adopting that 70-20-10 formula. And I I was kind of surprised when I, I heard of that formula because 
you'd think it would almost be flipped, right? Because Google's such a dynamic company. But when they invest 70% in core, that reinforces for us that there's safety in the core business that we know so well. And the further we drift away from our core, the, the more likely we are uh, to fail. So I'm not here to advocate that anyone listening have a 70-20-10 formula. But what I would advocate for is every company should have space for innovation. So, you know, if you are a larger company, you know, if you were a uh, 100 employees or more, you know, you might have bandwidth to have dedicated resources that are specifically focused on innovation, whether that be R&D or whatever. But if you're a smaller company or startup and you have 10 heads, um, you, may not have, you may not be able to dedicate people, but you can dedicate time to make sure that every week or every month that there are dedicated meetings or free time for your employees um, where they are they are focused on things that would be entirely new. So it, d- it doesn't concern me that people are obsessed with newness, but what we need to know about newness is, is it is always in conflict with with what we already do well. And in fact, the competencies required to do what what you already do well and the competencies required to innovate are two entirely different sets of competencies. So the former is more about um, operational excellence and execution, and newness is about being agile and looking outside uh, the market. So um, those things are very much in conflict. So that's why I, I recommend the smart diversification strategy where you're doing both at the same time, but you're recognizing uh, the challenges that that provides. We continue to hear the often celebrated mantra, information is king, and that the best companies are the ones with the best data. How do entrepreneurs build and maximize their return on data? I think the focus has been on internal process, and now it needs to shift to client-facing type technologies. And uh, being able to secure uh, report and you know leverage data is certainly uh, central in all that. You know, like for example, a lot of companies are starting to find ways they can better utilize uh, artificial intelligence, and so through bots or whatever, you can provide technologies where clients can serve themselves, and then you can use the that data that you glean from those technologies to ensure that you're, you know, you're building thoughtful solutions, but you're also um, either drip marketing or providing reporting back to clients that is specifically interesting to them. So we've certainly turned a corner with, you know, with the cloud being adopted by almost everyone over the last two or three years. Um, the data we have available to us is so much richer than it was uh, before. Many successful solopreneurs, ultimately, if they're successful, reach the point where they have to delegate some part of their business and actually hire others to help manage their growth. What are your insights and your recommendations for both when and how entrepreneurs should handle hiring? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize uh, we are in a talent war, right? And in fact, I, I have one client that does all the initial interviewing himself because he views that as, you know, so important in terms of his company's long-term success. So um, I might speak to the broader issue and just say that companies do a very poor job in recruiting in part because, you know, the model we have for recruiting is kind of broken. I, I, I don't think it's at all possible 
to fully assess somebody's capabilities through a 60-minute Q&A. So I think we have a lot to do uh, in that regard. Um, and every company is different, of course, but I would think the CEO or founder would take a really active role in making sure that they have the people and processes in place to constantly improve their talent pool and also create the, the culture that's really important to them. Um, what I'm seeing more and more of our clients is they're seeing the need to do some kind of cultural immersion during the onboarding process. So I would say that I'm seeing business owners much more involved in the front end of that process just so that they can build the companies based on the culture that's truly important to them. Mark, please share with listeners where they can follow you online, pick up a copy of your book, and engage your services. Oh, thank you for asking. So our website is www.optimizeinc.net. That's O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-I-N-C.net. The book, Momentum, How Companies Decide What to Do Next, is available on Amazon or in bulk on our site. Um, and a lot of my articles can be found both at Inc.com, um, at our blog on our website, uh, and also on the Vista Research Center. Mark, thank you so much for being a very special guest on Design You with Dr. Garrison Lakeham. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.